Welcome to Collected Talks of David Solomon, podcasts on Jewish history, the Bible, Jewish mysticism, philosophy, and thought. Find out more about David's upcoming classes, publications, and other recorded lectures by visiting davidsolomon.online. And now, here's the lecture. This week's episode is the second lecture in a seven-part series on women in Jewish history that David gave at the Jewish Museum in Melbourne in 2017. Unfortunately, not all of the lectures in that series were captured. However, I'm pleased to be able to report that we have this week found the first part in the series, which we will release later in the year. You can find the final two parts, parts six and seven, already released as episodes 50 and 51 of the podcast, Exploring Women in Jewish History from the 18th to 21st Centuries. As we approach Purim, you may be interested to know that the first part of this lecture focuses on Esther in Tanakh. Well, it's uh, good to see people back again. I see that the uh, number of men in the group has uh, maintained. Last time we looked at the, at the biblical period and we looked uh, at about 10 different women, all in the post Pentateuchal, the post-Chumash, the post-five books of Moses, that period from the settlement slash conquest of the land of the the land of Israel, uh, right up more or less to the end of the first temple period, which is roughly the narrative arc of the Tanakh, of the Bible. Uh, And there's one figure, and I kind of alluded to this last time, there's one figure that's kind of left hanging uh, that I didn't discuss, an extremely important icon uh, in Jewish history and in Jewish culture. And the reason I didn't discuss her is because she kind of bridges a little bit uh, the biblical with the next major phase of Jewish history, which we're doing uh, this afternoon. We're going to look at the next major phase, and I'm going to draw that here, and I'm going to talk about that uh, just as a general phase for a moment, because not everyone here. Uh, is necessarily as au fait with the structure, the chronological structure I'm going to talk about and how that's divided up. And some of you who've done uh, other sessions of Jewish history with me, particularly on the, those that covered in some form the Second Temple period, uh, will know that there's a very distinct structure to the Second Temple period without which it's very difficult for us to talk in historical terms because every one of those sub-phases of the Second Temple period has, it provides a particular context in which events happen. And if you're not aware of the wider context, then the narratives have no placement or uh, importance. Well, they have importance, but they're not really, uh, not really understood. So, uh, the Second Temple period, all these major periods in Jewish history are about 500 years long. Uh, the Jewish people do undergo quite significant transition in their condition in the world every 500 years or so this 500 year block is known as the second temple period and it kicks off a prox a prox um, and very neatly for us round about minus 500 round about 500 bce those of you who are familiar with world history at that time will know that the world generally is entering into a very very different kind of uh, uh, certainly spiritual a consciousness and um, a religious consciousness. There are many, many religious revolutions 
and new ideas happening around the world. Precisely this time is the time of the Buddha. It's the time of Confucius. It's the time of Zoroaster. And there are many, many significant changes happening in world culture generally. Not only that, it's, we're just entering now into the golden age of Greek philosophy. So this is a global phenomenon. And we begin this period of Jewish history known as the Second Temple. This is not a talk on the Second Temple per se, uh, but I just need to spend a minute backgrounding what is happening in this 500-year arc. Let's call this zero. The Second Temple is actually destroyed a little bit further on in the year 70 CE. And we're going to be discussing some things happening here because I want to look at the Second Temple as a whole. As you know, and this is all part of the prelim so we can understand where we're at, as you know, the Second Temple period can be... Don't run out in panic. Don't get, confu don't get confused. It's only your mind saying to you, oh, this is where I get confused. Don't let that voice come in. There are four subsets of the Second Temple period, and they're very easy to comprehend because they're all based on major historical shifts in relation to the Jewish people that happen in this period. And so the first, if I divide it up into centuries, minus four, minus three, minus two, minus one, and that will act as a background so that we can understand exactly, and this is important, you'll know by the things that we talk about tonight that this is important. If it wasn't important, I wouldn't be doing it. The first phase of the Second Temple period, some of you are familiar with this, I know, I just need to go over it for a minute for the sake of those who are not so familiar with this. The first phase of the Second Temple period is what we call the... Very good, but the Babylonian exile is here. It is the building of the Second Temple that is precisely that ends the Babylonian exile. So this first period is known as Correctus. It's the Persian period. The Persian period. It always goes after who's in control, basically. It was the Persians that ended Babylon's little moment in the sun. Not little, but big moment in the sun. And uh, they conquered. And uh, it was Cyrus's decree that allowed the Jews to return to rebuild the temple. So this period here is the Persian period. The second period, which goes roughly to about here, is what we sometimes call, uh, sometimes call it the Greek, but or uh, Hellenic, as opposed to Hellenistic, but Hellenic. I mean, that really uh, is the period that stretches over here, uh, right about into the uh, second century BCE. And, and really kind of changes the nature of things. Uh, dealing with that in a second. Um, then we have a third period of about exactly 100 years, which it is, of course, a completely and absolutely independent Judean kingdom called the Hasmonean. And the fourth period, the fourth period is, goes here and uh, beyond, and that, of course, is the Roman and each of these periods is precipitated by a major event or crisis that, of course, is the fault line by which other powers assume control over the land of Israel and over the destiny of the Jewish people at the time. Or well, not the destiny, the fate. For example, this, of course, the Persian is ushered in by the 
tremendous conquest effected by Cyrus of Persia. He destroyed Babylon and he announced the, the Jews could go back to their homeland and rebuild their temple. That ushers in the Persian period. The Greek period, of course, is ushered in by the astounding worldwide conquests of Alexander the Great. And of course, that included the land of Israel and the whole of the Middle East. And that ushered in, he, he geschmeist the Persian Empire completely and ushered in uh, the uh, kind of like the not pure Hellenic, but certainly uh, the client kingdoms of a, of a greater Hellenic Empire. That then ended, of course, this here is the Hasmonean and Maccabean revolt. That is Hanukkah. That happens here that ushers in a century of an independent Hasmonean kingdom all of which we've gone into detail in other talks and so on. But, and that, of course, following the civil wars at the end of the independent Hasmonean rule, tremendous civil wars within Jewish society, within Judea as well, as well. And into that power vacuum came the rise of the Roman Empire as they were con basically conquering everything else. Now that we've backgrounded that, now we can kind of start the talk so that when I talk about things, you'll know where they're placed in relation not only to these phases and periods, but to those various acute points of crisis themselves. And I'm going to talk about some very interesting women. And I'm probably going to end up talking about nine or ten women uh, right across, just as we did last time, uh, but uh, going basically right across this period. Uh, not only, as I said, to look at the lives of these women's, women themselves and to see how, from where they emerged and what they affected uh, in and of themselves, because they're all amazing, but also to try and map the way that women uh, have been either presented or received within Jewish society. What is the status of women vis-a-vis -vis the uh, continuum of history and how they, uh, where they fit in, uh, what circumstances and challenges uh, they have because uh, they are women and uh, <laughs> I'm going however to start with that figure that I didn't talk about last time uh, because she is strutting kind of both a biblical figure because this, her story is included in the Tanakh it is included in the Bible in its own unique uh, narrative uh, she's not mentioned elsewhere in the Bible except in the book that is about her uh, and according to some by her uh, and but also because she is in some ways very much conceptually as we shall see a part of the story of women throughout the Second Temple period and of course I'm talking about Esther now let me just say uh, from the outset that we've got Purim coming up, the festival of Purim in which we read the book of Esther. And so I don't need to go into great detail about uh, what that is. All of you, uh, I would say, I'd be very surprised if anyone here was not familiar with the basic uh, story of Esther as it's handed down to us in the narrative. Um, effectively, she uh, wins a beauty contest uh, to marry the king at a time when uh, just as uh, the Jewish population uh, of the realm of this king uh, are coming under uh, tremendous existential danger and through uh, very, very astute maneuvering, uh, she is able uh, to, as a, as a one-person Jewish lobby, to uh, save uh, the entire nation as, as a queen. You're listening to Collected Talks of David Solomon. 
If you enjoy these lectures, you can help us cover the cost of hosting, editing, and producing these podcasts for as little as $3 a month. Visit davidsolomon.online to learn more. And now, let's get back to the lecture. Now, look, and, and I'm going to say this because it will be, it's kind of important in terms of the theme I want to show about the Second Temple in relation to women, but it's a bit radical for some, um, <laughs> is that uh, we have a bit of a difficult time with the historicity of Esther. Uh, it's very, very difficult to place that historically. Even, even within the narrative itself, it's kind of a little bit floating. It talks, it gives some kind of indication of when it is set, but not completely. We assume that it must be uh, just at the beginning of the Second Temple period, post Cyrus, of course, because if we're dealing with a king. Achashverosh, and no one really knows who Achashverosh is. If you say it's Xerxes, and then it doesn't quite fit in which Xerxes, or it's Attic Xerxes, or which one is it? There are many, many complex chains of Persian rulers. But it is set, obviously, after the decree of Cyrus, so the Jews are already rebuilding, if not having rebuilt the temple. And yet here we are dealing with an exilic element of the population that has for whatever reason, remaining in the now Persian Empire outside the land of Israel and are coming under this sort of danger, despite despite the difficulty in historically aligning Esther, and I'm going to say this as an off-the-record, non-historical remark, is that despite the historical challenges of it, anyone who has read the book of Esther carefully, will know that it resounds, especially if we know Jewish history the way we know it, and especially those of us who are familiar with Jewish history of the last century from today, it resounds with a kind of truth that is almost impossible to fictionalize. It has an existential truth to it. The tremendous affinities that were discovered between uh, the story of Esther, the story of Haman's plans to genocide the Jewish people, have such a resonance with later events, much, 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 much later events, but repeated events throughout Jewish history, that there is something almost super mythical about the book, and it resonates with truth. But we cannot really historically pick it. Modern scholarship will tell you and this will surprise some, modern scholarship will tell you that the book of Esther is much, much later. And this is, this is going to be interesting for us when we look at things. It's much later. It's actually a product of the Hasmonean. Because the Hasmonean kingdom, complex religiously that it was, elements within were seeking texts that were... Uh, able to act as kind of national, nationalist myths. And Esther was a classic example of that. And remarkably, almost all of those textual documents we have from the Hasmonean period all involve women. There is a tremendous rise in the status of women as iconic figures in the Hasmonean period, which we are definitively going to look at. But if we just come back to the book of Esther, which places itself more or less there, one of the very interesting facets of it is that Esther is really the first book 
to use the term Yehudi, a Jew. Remember now we're in the post-exilic time, the greater Israel of the 12 tribes, that's been gone for a couple of centuries now after the Assyrian conquests. And so this notion that people of that nation, of that particular cultural and ethnic and religious identity outside, in exile, in diaspora, are known as Jews, really comes to us from the use of that expression in, uh, in the book of Esther uh, regarding uh, her uncle Mordechai. And there are other, other fascinating aspects of Esther that have an enduring influence simply beyond the festival of Purim. You know that uh, quite a number of medieval writers talk about Esther. This is much, much later in Jewish history where diaspora is not a new thing to us. Talk about Esther's particular political approach as the prototype or par exemplar of the way that Jewish communities lobby behind the scene. It first of all begins, and they point a three-point process. The three-point process, it begins with a call for Jewish unity. Talking about in the face of impending serious decrees that you have to lobby behind the scenes. You must be unified as a people. The second step involves entertainment. That is, you entertain the power figures, hospitality. You don't just arrange to go and meet them in their study or their office. You actually invite them to a meal or a party or a soiree or some form of entertainment. And the third, of course, once you have done those two, is just sheer brutal, honest communication. Uh, and then you rely on the faith that uh, the unity of the Jewish people and, and the help of the divine can, uh, can assist. And that, that pattern was followed uh, by many, many different kind of uh, uh, Jewish activists and, uh, and lobbyists right down the ages. And just, uh, I just want to address one more thing on that because it's kind of interesting. Because, this, you know, just talking now about familial relations and talking about now the story of Esther and talking about, you know, standing back for a minute as an adult and not as a child who looks at it, but as an adult and the obvious question, you go, well, what's going on there? What's going on there? Right? Why does this man farm his adopted daughter over who he's a guardian, over whom he's a guardian, out to some... A beauty contest to be married to a great big Gentile king uh, kind of where is that sitting in the whole Jewish picture of things especially and here I digress for a second because it's kind of it's, it's on topic when the Jewish people came back to the land of Israel following the decree of Cyrus there was only a small wave of Aliyah. There were only about 42,000 that came back, right? And some of you look in horror, and I, I know, right? It's, it defies imagination that you would have a generation where actually they have a restored Jewish homeland in the land of Israel, and not everybody living in the diaspora goes and lives there. It's remarkable. But, uh, you know, people had nice homes and nice schools for their kids and nice cars in the garage. And that. So, 
and it was difficult. And then, of course, there were several waves of Aliyah. And with each wave of Aliyah, there would be new, different uh, spiritual renewals as people came from Persia and uh, the former Babylon to renew Jewish life once again. And, of course, one of those famous waves, which is here, uh, was a delegation uh, from, in fact, the Persian authorities to assist in reorganizing the society, the somewhat chaotic society that was happening here. And that was one of, one of those waves, was, of course, uh, led by Ezra. And one of the things that Ezra did, one of the really, really significant things that Ezra did uh, when he arrived, amongst the edicts and enactments that he made in order to rejuvenate a Jewish, authentic Jewish society in the land of Israel, was he told all these men that had married Gentile wives in the intervening periods that that was not on and they had to divorce them. It is really from this period. I mean, in the Bible, in Tanakh, when you read about some Jewish figure falling in love with a woman who's not of the tribe or not of the Jewish nation, that doesn't seem to be a problem. Oh, I'll marry that one, I'll marry this one. Yeah, she can come. You know, they're all part of Israel now. Uh, but it is Ezra who changes that. Our whole obsession against intermarriage really originates from here. As does the emphasis on matrilineal descent for Jewish identity. All right. Uh, so we're coming back to Esther and we're going, ah, oh, you know, we've got this kind of thematic push against intermarriage. And there goes Esther, marries this king. And uh, there you go. So what's she doing there? She's supposed to be one of the holiest, inspiring women in Jewish history. And yet she is actually uh, married to a king. Many, many commentaries, especially mystical commentaries, tried to work through this issue. And one of the more interesting answers to that uh, is provided in the Zohar, which, as you know, is the kind of major core text of Jewish mysticism. Uh, which says that Esther was a unique person, in, uh, unique in many ways, but one of the ways in which she was unique was that she had attained a level at which her good inclination, everybody's got a good inclination and an evil inclination, a yetzer tov and a yetzer hara, that her good inclination she was able to separate that from her evil inclination completely so that her evil inclination could actually go off and assume its own body and do what it had to do and then would come back and be realigned. Therefore, obviously, it was the evil inclination that was going to bed every night with the Hashverosh and the good inclination remained as it was. I'm not, that doesn't shed light on women in Jewish history, but it's just a very fascinating thing about what, once again, as I mentioned last time, right, this really is reflecting more on the issue of men who are discussing these issues rather than on the women, women themselves. Very quickly, because I've got some... No, it's not so easy. No, we'll, that's a very, very good point, and we'll come to that, and then, and you'll see, you'll see in tonight's, in today's talk, why it's not so easy to say that. It's not so easy to say that. One of the things about that, and I, I, one, I don't want to go into it too deep, but theologically, that's an important point about Esther, 
because there is an entire entire mode of thinking going right through Jewish theology in many, many cases. Uh, and we even looked at this last time a little bit with Yael, right? That this idea of sin for the sake of redemption. Sin for the sake of redemption. That idea bursts forth occasionally in the whole pressure box of Jewish thought. And sometimes uh, we see that really, really openly, and then sometimes it's a bit more subdued. Estimate, I know you're troubled by it, but we'll speak to the rabbis after. All right? <laughs> now, so I, I wanted to mention that because really, uh, one of the interesting things about Persia um, is that we have quite a lot of perspectives on the way in which the Persian Empire generally... Um, look, Persia was an was a ancient world patriarchal society. It wasn't what we would call enlightened about gender in the way that we would understand that today. But within ancient Persian society, there was definitely a space for the idea of the blazing female heroine that comes in and either does something remarkable or marries the heroic king or does something. And and so there are a lot of stories about powerful women. Uh, But on the day-to-day level, we're under the administration of the Persian Empire. We're basically a colony. We have some kind of autonomous rule. We have to pay taxes and we can't rebel. But overall, uh, what was going on in the Persian Empire was not necessarily liberating to women any more so than any, anywhere else. And in fact, in some of these ancient societies, I'd go as far as to say that it's not really a patriarchal rule. It is a familyarchal rule. And therefore, you are ruled by your place in family in relation to the wider society. It wasn't so much that men are coming along and saying, we're in control, you're going to do what we say. The men had to do what they had to do as part of their family roles, and the women had to do what they had to do. And if a man was in charge, he was in charge because that was what he had to do. I know the distinction is, is a bit mute, um, but these people were, in the, in, in the ancient world, you're very, very much ruled by your social position. There's not a lot of fluidity. Women, of course, were seen... Uh, in many, many ways as things that you had uh, rather than people that were. But occasionally, uh, just as with men, I mean, women rise uh, beyond that. But the Persian Empire is known for it. And maybe those historians who uh, want to post-date Esther need to look very, very carefully at the way that the Book of Esther remarkably reflects the kind of uh, social conditions at the time. But I, uh, I want to, um, I, I, before the break, I, 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 I want to get to a certain point because I've roughly divided today's talk into, uh, into two. And I want to, uh, we don't know, beyond Esther, we don't know a lot about women in this period, in the Persian period, because... One of the reasons for that is we don't know a lot about anything in the Persian period. It's what there's about 150 years that historians call the quiet period uh, because we are so kind of missing a historical detail. 
Uh, we do know some of the things that were going on in the Jewish world. We know about the temple at Elephantine in Egypt. We know so on. But uh, it's, it, it, it's a very, very obscure period. And also we're quite busy doing a lot of other things and like reconstructing the society. And we know the, the textual and spiritual products of that age because that's the age that gave us basically the Bible in its almost fully canonized form. But uh, after the uh, conquests of Alexander, uh, we know a lot more historical detail, but even within this period, detail about women and the lives of ordinary women or even the lives of stories of extraordinary women are not well known to us. I'm going to focus on this period here, really the transition to the Hasmonean, where we start to suddenly see the rise of a female consciousness in political society and as well in the culture at large because uh, something happens you see um, the Hellenic world for all its enlightenment was also a world that was really all about men uh, it was men who were running around admiring their bodies in the gymnasium it was men who were wandering around the agora thinking philosophical thoughts uh, any woman that did something interesting had to go and create her own island society in order to do it. <laughs> I'm thinking of, you know, Lesbos. But uh, women did not play. I mean, Aristotle will even tell you. I mean, Plato a little less extent, but Aristotle certainly, you know, chad mashmait, as they say. Men are superior to women. Therefore, they should rule over them and women should be submissive and should do what their men tell them because men are the superior gender. I mean, that is, the, for all of its enlightenment, that is your basic Hellenic view. Yeah? And uh, even relations, even intimate relations with women were not seen as an end in themselves. They were just one form on a scale of pleasure. Of course, of course, of course. The Greeks were... Greeks and people don't realise... I could digress, it's fascinating, but people don't even realise that the, probably the most stunning and influential and phenomenal text in the whole of Greek philosophical culture, which is Plato's Symposium, and even in the end of that, you know, they've been discussing the incredible philosophy behind love all night... And in the morning, all these guys are lying around in the drunken stupor. And the only one who's left awake is Socrates. And Socrates gets up with his young boy and they go off to the sauna. Right? So even at the end of that, it's like this, you know, like at the end of the day, yeah, it's all very good to discuss philosophical love, but I prefer little boys. Right? I mean, but, but they didn't see that in the way that we see that, you know, oh, pedophilia is wrong, whatever. They just saw that because that's how they viewed the world around them. And that women were just part of... And women were functional because you could actually have a child with a woman and so on. So we need to bear that in mind. For all the people get excited about the Hellenics, their views on women were not terror. So therefore, it's very, 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 very interesting that part of the Hasmonean revolt against Hellenism, which was religiously inspired, religiously inspired by conservative Jews who were trying to reinstate Jewish values in rejecting all of Hellenic culture, also rejected their views about women. And the vacuum was filled by a rise in the importance and status and contributional potential of women 
to determine the course of Jewish history. And I'm going to discuss three important narratives that emerge from the Hasmonean period about women. Whether they are historical is a discussion within Jewish literature and Jewish history. It could be that none of them are, strictly speaking, historical. It could be that they are quasi-historical, so they retain some core of something that happened. But where they are all instructive is the way in which women rise to the fore of the kind of national myths that were being created in the Hasmonean period from existing stories or even uh, from, uh, from new stories. And probably the most famous of those, are, which is very, very well known in the whole... We're not entirely sure when it was written. It is set much earlier, but it could have been, like Esther, could have been written anywhere in this period, is, of course... Oh, one second, let me just write this on the board. I've discussed Esther, haven't I? So you know where we are. Is, of course, the story of Judith, Yehudit. Put up your hand if you're familiar with that. Okay, it's not strictly speaking in the Bible, it's in the Apocrypha. The Bible's finished anyway, but it is. Uh, so Yehudit is basically a story that is placed... <sighs> it, 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 there are several different opinions on when exactly Judith is set, or when exactly it is meant to be set, or whether it's kind of allude to. It's either here or here. But it is the story of a Jewish town which is uh, besieged by a general called Holophanes. And Holophanes representing a foreign army, perhaps it could have been a Babylonian or Persian army, it could have been an Assyrian army, it could have been a Seleucid army. But at some point in an invasion and persecution, this town is besieged. And uh, after a month or so, there's no water left. And people are basically at the point where they're about to open the doors, the gates of the city, and just make any kind of, uh, negotiate any kind of surrender that they can. So it's dire times. It's right at the end. And Holophanes, of course, is this your typical A-class, nasty, uh, brutal general. And suddenly there pops up in the population of the town uh, this woman called Yehudit. She is a widow, but she's very beautiful. She's young, she's beautiful widow. Sorry? They all are, yes, yes, yes. So they, uh, 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 anyway, through a series of stratagems, she gets Holophanes' attention, and then he, uh, she manages to get herself invited uh, to Holophanes' tent, uh, which probably wasn't that challenging to do that, but she manages to get herself there, uh, under the pretext of uh, going to divulge information to him about the weaknesses in the city and obviously a lot of uh, superficial flirtation and uh, playing up to his ego and doing the whole thing uh, and uh, eventually gets into his bedchamber alone. Uh, feed, listen carefully. Feeds him some cheese because the area of the land of Israel that she came from was very, very well known for the quality of its cheese. Gives him some cheese, gives him some wine. They have cheese and wine. He, of course... Uh, falls asleep. This is the eve of uh, whatever's going to happen. He falls asleep and she takes his huge clunking sword and kachung whacks off his head, right? Stuffs it in her bag 
and then she and her handmaiden bog off back to the village. In the morning, she tells the elders what's happened. She shows them Holofernes' head. And in the morning, they all decide, you know what, let's attack. So they attack as the best form of defense. And of course, that combined with the soldiers in the invading army going in to wake up Holofernes and finding his blood-soaked corpse there without a head freaks them out totally. uh, And they all run. And it affects a tremendous victory. Now, this, this story... Uh, which is, was considered throughout the Second Temple and beyond as historical, although even though we can't exactly place it, became more than its historical value, became an icon of Jewish inspiration. And that's why it became so well known and so discussed during the Hasmonean period. In fact, the versions that came down to us from the Second Temple period are actually versions in Greek. Uh, we know that it's based on a Hebrew original, but the Hebrew originals had to be reconstructed uh, from the Greek. So, where is it written? Oh, it's written. If you want to read the book of Judith, there is the book of Judith. It's contained in the Apocrypha. You'll find it in any Christian Bible. No, maybe not the Protestant ones, but certainly uh, any of the Christian Bibles that have the Apocrypha. So, uh, Judith becomes this, uh, and, of, and of course, she never remarried right so there is that kind of you know iconizing of the woman as if she's going to do something like that then we're going to put her beyond uh, the realm of grubby men and their thoughts we're going to make her celibate we're going to sanctify her in some way it's very very interesting well yeah exactly exactly you wouldn't be in a hurry um now there's two now now now, now just putting uh, and and of course of course when I we talk about the story of Yehudit we talk about the story of Judith what does that resonate with who who have we discussed already that that goes wow that story sounds very Yael it's a kind of a reworking of the Yael theme and as well it's also got a bit of Esther going on as well so you can see already that they're drawing on these feminist icons for the purpose of <clears throat> the Hasmonean movement, which was effectively a nationalist, militarist uh, movement. They were like Beitar on crack. And, they cre- and that, uh, there's no wonder, therefore, that the state of Israel takes a lot of its symbolism from the Hasmonean period. Now, <laughs> thank you, I like that. There's two other stories which are fascinating that come to us from this period. And these are, these are not just, oh, yeah, we had to find these stories obscure. These are well-known stories that endured as exemplars of the Hasmonean period. And they're all about women, all about the rise of powerful women. And I'm going to talk very quickly now two particular um, stories, both of which involve a woman called Hannah. Well, <laughs> we don't really know. Uh, both of the women in these stories are called Hannah. Uh, the Talmud actually calls the first one something else, Miriam Batanchum, uh, but they've come down to us historically as their name is Hannah. And in some ways, they kind of reflect, in a way, the role played by the very first Hannah, who we looked at last week, the one who found the power of prayer. Uh, but these two women each in their own way, effect a very different type of resistance. Remember, the, it is all about the pressure of the Seleucid Hellenic 
dynasties here and their decrees. That was the pressure valve that caused the eruption of the Hasmonean revolt against Hellenic rule. And the first Hannah is, of course, the famous Hannah and her seven sons. These two Hannahs, as I said, different types of resistance. One, passive resistance. Passive, but resistant nevertheless. And the other, active resistance. And the famous Hannah and her seven sons is a story that's recorded in the book of Maccabees. The book of Maccabees is not a biblical book in the Jewish tradition. It is part of the Apocrypha but nevertheless is a reasonable, reliable historical source. If you take the book of Maccabees and you take Josephus and you take some of the other uh, historians in the ancient world, you can create quite, we have quite a detailed picture of what's going on. But the book of Maccabees records a story about a woman that we now call Hannah, who had seven sons. And one of the Seleucid rulers, whether it was Antiochus IV or whether it was one of his underlings, uh, forced or attempted to force uh, her, one of her sons. Uh, this is the story is told in the book of Maccabees. So those of you who know it different, hold on to your little pinky just now, because this is how the story is told in the book of Maccabees, wanted to force uh, Hannah's sons to eat pork. And the first one refused and he was killed. And the second one refused and he was killed. And the third and the fourth and the fifth and the sixth and even right down to the seventh youngest little boy who saw all his brothers be killed in front of him, refused to eat pork and suffered martyrdom with them, after which Hannah basically just, uh, um, well, there's different versions. Now, in the later version, which places, retells this story in Midrashic and Talmudic account, which places it here, because as you know, the destruction of the temple by the Romans was by no means... Uh, the most severe persecution that we underwent by the Romans even in that period because 60 years later uh, the Hadrianic persecutions was actually a war against uh, the religion of the Jews. This was a, a national disaster but even though it just included the destruction of the temple it was a national disaster but the war against Judaism by Hadrian 60 years later in around 130 was a horrendous period and so the story is retold then and in that version it is not eating pork, it is bowing down to an idol. And it is in that version that after seeing her seven sons martyred, she basically kills herself. She um, goes to the top of the roof and uh, jumps off, which is, seems to be a very, very common way in which women killed themselves in, uh, in the ancient uh, times. You would go to a third story, you know, how high was the building then? Maybe three stories was your high skyscraper and you just jump off uh, and she uh, killed herself. But... That story is a story of deep, deep passive resistance. So influential was that story that it went on even to kind of influence the whole Christian notion of martyrdom as passive resistance uh, that came later. It was cited by church fathers even as a classic and essential uh, illustration of the power of passive resistance. The second Hana story is very, very different. The second Hana story is one of active resistance. It's not as well known. Put up your hand if you knew the Hannah and her seven sons story. Oh, okay. So this other Hana is not as well known and yet is mentioned in Midrash. And once again, the historicity of this is kind of a little bit elusive for us. 
but it could contain the spark of something. But what's important is that this was a known story and a, a, that illustrated kind of the rise of women in their role as national inspirers in the early Hasmonean period because what precipitated the Hasmonean revolt? We know that there was the whole pressure of the edicts. We know that uh, someone came, a governor came to uh, the town of Modi'in. He wanted to offer a sacrifice. Uh, Matityahu, the priest, uh, killed the guy and that kind of started the revolt. But uh, there are stories, I mean, Midrash, in rabbinic literature and in historical, sort of quasi-historical Jewish sources, which relate that there had become a, um, I wouldn't exactly call it a custom, uh, it had become the rule in provinces of Judea, Judea governed by the Seleucid authorities, that if there was a wedding, then it's been known in other parts as well that the governor would have the first right uh, of... Uh, yeah, sorry? Droit de Seigneur, as it's known. It's a kind of uh, the right that the governor has uh, to uh, have intercourse with uh, a bride uh, before then, you know, she goes and lives with her husband. Uh, it's a horrendous, absolutely horrendous uh, abuse uh, of power that we've seen in a number of different places at different times. Uh, and it was incredibly degrading to the local population, as a result of which uh, the uh, Jewish people just kind of stopped getting married for about three years. But eventually, uh, it came, they, they did put on a marriage. The... Uh, Hasmonean brothers and their family put on the marriage of their sister. So we know about the famous uh, brothers, Judah Maccabee and his brothers, but they also had a sister. And her name that's come down to us is Hannah. And Hannah at her wedding, they had a very public wedding because they thought, you know, this is, they thought the wedding was the sign of resistance. And they uh, invited lots of people. And at the wedding, remember you're talking about. 170 BCE, it's not exactly the dumb thing, but at her wedding, uh, she stood up in front of anyone, everyone and uh, basically took hold of her dress and had a massive Germain Greer moment and just went, ripped it and completely exposed herself. Um, everybody rushed up. Uh, in fact, the brothers were so angry they were going to kill her. And she goes, no, hold a moment, hold on a moment. You have become so habituated to the oppression going on, you don't seem too worried about the fact that the governor is going to see me completely naked and violate me. But when I'm exposed in front of my own family and friends, you suddenly get all heated up and want to kill me. And it was that speech that then precipitated the rebellion. What is fascinating also about that, if we look at it, is that without going into too much about it, because I know that not everyone's going to be a fan of this, and uh, I'm not, is that today it's extremely interesting because amongst the most radical feminists, not even the most radical feminists, it's a, it's, it's a known feminist uh, concept uh, to demonstrate naked. Even those women that are concerned specifically about body shaming or about the right to their own body, you can see that there are uh, the extreme form of that, or whether it's furs or whatever. So it's a kind of archetypal uh, example of a woman 
uh, precipitating an event, precipitating a revolution, uh, basically effectively through through feminine protest. And so it's extremely interesting. So those three stories, Yehudit and the two Khanas, come down to us in the way that women became uh, nationalist icons, much, much more than men. We have the military stories about Yehuda Maccabi, but all of the stories that are about national revolt, national resistance, uh, effecting a huge surge in morale in order to uh, defeat the enemy, these are, these, are, these are the province of women in the Second Temple period. And whether or not you want to say, ah, oh, well, you know, he's not telling us necessarily historical, look at it from the perspective of how these stories and these narratives were received and how important a part they played in the whole of the Hasmonean period, because it is the Hasmonean period that is going to give us our most amazing woman of the whole of the Second Temple period. In fact, possibly even of the whole millennium. Well, when I say the whole millennium, I mean from, say, here for the next thousand years, is a woman here that in herself is a testament to the rise of the status of women uh, in Hasmonean times. And that, of course, is a woman that went on to become queen. And we know, th- and, and this, this woman is, um, if, you know, if we had to pick one woman from the Second Temple, this would be the one. <sighs> In brevitas extremis, because you know all this, so the Hasmoneans got their independent kingdom, and then, of course, uh, they. Although Yehuda died in battle and uh, Yonatan and so on, but by the time we get to Shimon, and around one three eight, um, they've got an independent kingdom, and Shimon is uh, kind of. It's not quite a kingdom yet. He's a ruling high priest. And then his big son, Yochanan Hirkanos, who rules for 30 years, who uh, is effectively king, but he's still holding on to kind of uh, high priest and ruler. But it's his son, um, his son, uh, Aristobulus, Yehuda Aristobulus, uh, who only rules for a year, who is the first really to call himself king. So he's high priest and king. And that happens in around minus 103, 104. And... Uh, one of the reasons, uh, well, <laughs> we've done the exact reason, but uh, it's pretty powerful karma that he only lasted for a year before dying of some horrible ailment because he, when he ascended the throne, he put his mother and his brothers in prison. A kind of a known thing to do in the ancient world, except that he starved his mother to death. And um, if you starve your mother to death, it's not, not going to bring good karma on you. And uh, he, he only lasted a year. Now, do you, however, he was married. He was married. And he married a woman. He married a woman called... We know her in Hebrew as Shlom Tzion. And uh, in English, if, you look, if you're researching this... Her, she is known as Salome Alexander. And uh, Shlom, I'm going to refer to her as Shlomtzion. Uh, and Shlomtzion, when her husband, Yehuda Aristobulus, the king, died, uh, she released his brothers from prison and married one of them. She married Alexander Yanaeus, or as we know, Alexander Yanai. Uh, that caused a scandal. 
uh, the fact that she would marry her brother, her, her husband's, her late husband's brother, and people say, oh, why would that be a scandal? Don't we have the whole thing of leveret marriage in the Bible, where if the husband dies without any children, then his wife remarries the brother? And as the Pharisaic factions were quick to point out, that is not the case when you're dealing with a high priest. If Alexander Yana is going to go around calling himself the high priest, he can't be married to his brother's wife. And so that was one of the fault lines of friction that was emerging between the Sadducean and the Pharisaic factions at the time. It was an extremely factionalized time in, in Jewish life as we were in this fluid state working out exactly what Judaism was. But Shlom Tzion was the dutiful wife, although very, very politically astute, uh, during the whole of Alexander Yanai's reign, which also lasted nearly 30 years, during which time he definitively allied himself with the Sadducean faction and brutalized much of the population and the intellectual class. It so happens that Shlom Tzion's brother, Shimon ben Shetach, was one of the leaders of that Pharisaic scribal class. Uh, but because, she was, because he was the queen's brother, he was allowed certain visitation rights into the palace. And of course he was spared, but Alexander ran a brutal um, massacre and, uh, against uh, the Pharisaic factions, a total wipeout of the intelligentsia of that class. He crucified 800 Pharisees. Uh, and obviously alienated quite a few people in the process since the, since the Pharisaic faction went on to take on the famous brand name of the rabbis or Chazal that Pharisaic faction was a much more embedded in the populace than the elitist Sadduceans who were focused more on the temple and the priesthood this was the fault line of the civil war that was happening but Alexander uh, broke no opposition and wiped it out so when he died in around minus 76 there was no one really to assume power, and so Shlom Tzion did. According to certain accounts, she got his blessing on his deathbed, uh, and that she convinced him that she would be the best person to take over. The sons did not seem ready. They were themselves riddled uh, with the factions that were riddling uh, Judea at the time. So Shlom Tzion became queen. And what a queen! She was queen for nine years, a window in Jewish history of total calm and chill and pragmatism and resolution. The first thing, she herself was aligned with the Pharisaic faction, but the first thing she made sure was to get all of the rabbis and leaders together and say to them, I know that my husband persecuted you brutally for decades, but we are going to have a state funeral for him and you are going to attend and you are going to show respect. That is the first thing that's going to happen. Then she allowed the Pharisaic faction to effectively become the judicial class so that they reinstituted the Sanhedrin. They also reorganized the temple according to Pharisaic ideas. So the Sadducees already were feeling the pressure 
of being on the wane. But she was able to take both sides and compromise pragmatically in order to preserve peace. She also listened to some extent to the advice of the rabbis not to go on any military adventures, which Hasmonean kings very much enjoyed doing. So she really didn't do any of that. One little campaign to Damascus and, and a defense of the country somewhere else. But she was basically uh, a peaceful monarch. She was the last independent monarch. The historians and the rabbis were so impressed with her rule that they even talked about how her during her rule nature itself changed and the GDP of the country grew and the productivity of the country grew and everybody everybody agrees that that almost short of a decade just short of a decade rule of Shlom Tzion Hamalka was the most peaceful and tranquil and prosperous time of the whole of the Second Temple period in fact possibly the whole of Jewish history it kind of tells us that maybe we should never have had kings we should have always had queens even though we saw some awful queens last week but uh, when uh, when they get it right if they got it right in any one monarch in this entire period it was Shlom Tzion Hamalka uh, who ruled here and just on the break I'm going to tell you because we're going to take a break in a minute but just on that break I'm going Amazing. There is, of course, there is, of course, a street named after her in Tel Aviv. <laughs> but um, you're right. Uh, people don't people don't realize this is this is a standout figure of Jewish history. Shlomzi on Hamalka, Queen Salome Alexandra, and she was from. She wasn't just you know, pizzas monarch, right? I'll do it for the sake of it. She had an idea of her own uh, reflection of the deepest ethical and moral values of the Jewish people. Uh, and uh, e extraordinary rule, extraordinary woman. Unfortunately, when she died in around about 67 BCE, that's when her sons uh, came to the fore and it was only a matter of three or four years uh, before the whole nation was plunged once again into the most awful civil wars as the brothers slogged it out for control of the land, for control of Jerusalem, for control of the temple and eventually that was the situation. Only three or four short years after Shlom Tzion's death that uh, Pompey uh, based in Damascus by the time you get to around 64, 63 uh, was basically invited to come in and restore order and from that point onwards uh, Judea became a client state of Rome. So Shlom Tzion was the last independent, uncontested monarch of an independent Jewish kingdom and uh, affected a remarkable, remarkable um, rule uh, that, is still, that is still remembered. All right, we're going to take a break. And, and all, everything I've said is kind of particularly on the breakdown of the Hasmonean kingdom. Bear that in mind. Don't forget that as you have a cup of tea. Uh, come back bearing in mind because it is that that we're going to pick up on to look at the extraordinary women I'm going to talk about after the break that follow uh, in the next few decades. Right, so thank you for being prompt with the, uh, with the tea and so on. It's actually interesting when you think about it because the, uh, we looked at kind of uh, between uh, Judith and the two Hannahs we're looking at three kind of types of resistance. Uh, Judith is obviously what we might call violent resistance. Um, 
uh, Hannah and her seven sons, obviously the extreme case of passive resistance. And uh, the second Hannah, the sister of the, of the Maccabeans, is, uh, is kind of um, what you might call a, a passive activism. Passive in the sense that she did it to herself, uh, and activism in the sense that it is ultimately a protestual act. Uh, that uh, that shifts the balance. But I'm going to move on now because, as you recall, Shlomtzion dies uh, and her two sons, uh, Yochanan Hirkunus II, who, her, his, whose mother had appointed him as the high priest, and Aristobulus, uh, Yehuda Aristobulus, the, the, the names get repeated, so don't fuse your mind trying to uh, remember them all, but they, uh, they are fighting out a civil war. These are the two sons. There's a third brother as well who's also in the fringes trying to make deals uh, and get armies together, but those two are the primary protagonists of an awful civil war uh, that eventually is going to uh, invite the Romans in. And uh, at one point in that civil war, and bear in mind, because I'm going to divert after I tell you this fact, so I want you to hold it in your mind, but I'm going to tell you because it's in context now. At one point in that civil war, the two brothers actually made a kind of temporary truce they recognized that their war was tearing the country and the population apart and they made a temporary truce. During that truce, Yehuda Aristobulus's son and Yochanan Hyrcanus II's daughter were married. They tried to affect, symbolize the truce by marrying their two children. That union uh, produced a number of children. And hold that thought, all right? Because we're moving on. Because after Pompey, after Pompey comes in, in the uh, late so around sixty-three, uh, really, the country um, becomes an effective vassal state of Rome. Uh, but the idea of the Hasmonean kingdom hasn't gone away, and the idea that there could be some kind of monarchical rule hadn't gone away. And the country was effectively being ruled by uh, Yochanan Hyrcanus, who Pompey eventually resolved the conflict in his favour. But the real power behind the throne was his very, very influential and powerful advisor. <laughs> Every president needs a powerful advisor. Uh, his advisor, uh, Antipater. Antipater, of course was originally, not just originally, he was, an Idumean. And as you would recall from uh, your Jewish history at school, uh, that uh, sometime before that, uh, back here in fact, under the first Yochanan Hyrcanus, the Idumeans had been forcibly converted to Judaism. And he was one of the product of that Antipater. And Antipater had a son, uh, that son was running around in the north of Israel predominantly with his own little private militia, a little local, set himself up as a local warlord, uh, and even when he was summoned by the Sanhedrin, basically flicked the forks at them and uh, didn't really, oh, he attended, but he attended with about 25 strong men in tow, uh, and they had to cancel the proceedings. He was a law unto himself. And when, in fact, uh, the country was falling into a kind of a, a lawlessness. He rose up and decided that he would rule it and he would make himself king. And his name, of course, is Herod. And Herod 
comes to the fore in the 40s and has a number of issues that he needs to negotiate in order to consolidate his power. Because the, although he has managed to uh, subdue the remaining Hasmonean candidates for the kingship and for rule, there's always others coming in from the side. And at one point, he even has to flee. And where does he going to go? In around minus 37, he really needs to go somewhere where his power will be confirmed and consolidated. He needs to speak to Rome. But he doesn't have to go all the way to Rome, does he? No. He only has to go as far as Egypt, because in Egypt is sitting one of the rulers of the Roman Empire under the triumvirate. This is the time where Rome had three effective rulers and the ruler sitting in Egypt that Herod had to go and get confirmation from and help was, of course, no, no, Pompey, Pompey's, Pompey's, I think Pompey's already even possibly in the next world by now. Um, no, you know this. You know this. Mark Antony. Mark Antony is sitting in Egypt with Cleopatra. So he goes to Mark Antony to get himself confirmed. Now, uh, actually, uh, just... What, what was that? Richard Burton. Richard <laughs> Yeah. Just... I, you know, Elizabeth Taylor probably looked nothing like Cleopatra actually looked. It's quite interesting. Well, she does a, you know, a good job. Prior to that, in trying to remove one of the sieges, you see, Herod's big deal, and if you understand the psychology of Herod, uh, it helps if you're going to look at the psychology of Herod and why Herod was Herod, an amazing, amazing career that we're not even going to touch on today. We're only looking at Herod as the background to the next series of women uh, because everything is about the Herodian dynasty at this time. Is uh, To understand the psychology of Herod is to understand his deep-seated insecurities. He had effectively grabbed power over Judea without having any real legitimacy for it. He needed this legitimacy. And the one way that he could get this legitimacy was by marriage. Now, he was already married to a woman, but that wasn't a problem. He's Herod. He can send her away. And the woman that really, 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 really would cement it for him is the daughter of that pact that I spoke about. She was one of the children of the union that was designed to ally the Hasmonean houses. And it didn't hurt that this girl, and she was still only a girl, she was barely a teen, oh, I don't even think she was a teenager yet, that this girl was beautiful. <laughs> I mean, yeah, no, 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 but, but historically beautiful. And everybody, even just see if they're all right. This woman was literally head and shoulders above all the women of her age for beauty, for intelligence, for sophistication. She was a serious princess. She was the real deal. She was a Hasmonean princess. And Herod knew that to get her would be the ultimate stamp on his legitimacy as ruler because that would mean that any of his progeny from her would carry the Hasmonean bloodline and that marriage alliance, he would be Herod. She was maybe yeah, 10, 11 at first. Yeah, yeah. Now, he doesn't marry her straight away because she's too young, 
right? Even in the ancient world, there was this thing called too young. So, uh, but he has her kind of, they arrange the marriage. And because they realize that they're going to have to do this because Herod is really the, the power in the region. And uh, he, what Herod wants, Herod gets. Uh, and that it would also make sense if you're trying to just bring the population to a kind of cohesive unity. So uh, Herod uh, is betrothed to her. But then in uh, minus 37, uh, well, no, we're not at 37 yet. Uh, he has to come back in around about the year 40 and he has to lift one of the sieges. He's got some help from, uh, uh, from some sources like the Egyptians and Cleopatra and so on, but he needs to lift this siege. And uh, while he does it, he takes... Um, this girl, and I haven't even told you her name. <laughs> right. She is known, watch, I'm going to write two things on Dabod. Right? Her name in Hebrew is Miriam. And she is known, because there's a few Miriams in Jewish history, it might not shock you to find out. She is known as Miriam HaChashmonait. Miriam the Hashmonite. And kind of maybe even the first. Because she's not the only Miriam Hashmonait, it would appear. Although she is, no, 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 she, 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 no, let's take that out, that's confusing. She is Miriam Hashmonait. What I meant to say was she's not the only Miriam married to Herod. Uh, so he marries her. Uh, he marries her before he even lifts the siege on Jerusalem. He takes her to Samaria and he marries her uh, because he wants to enter Jerusalem. One, because, you know, She's really pretty and he's in a hurry to marry her. And secondly, because he wants to move into Jerusalem, lift the siege and move into Jerusalem with all that legitimacy in place. Uh, and then in 37, this year that I'm alluding to, which this very, very bizarre story that's told in different places uh, uh, and would appear to have a certain amount of historical veracity. And you're going to understand why it's weird. It's weird, but you can understand why it's really weird uh, uh, soon. And that is that in minus 37, uh, he has to go back and get confirmation from Mark Antony uh, as a result of all the different struggles that have happened between the Hasmonean brothers and so on, and large sections of the population basically writing to the Roman authorities going, anyone but Herod. And he has to get confirmation from Mark Antony that not only... Uh, can you rely on Rome but in fact that he can be king and effectively it was understood when Herod went to see Mark Antony that Mark Antony would do one of two things he would either agree that Herod could be king or he would kill him Herod took Miriam who he loved deeply who he loved deeply if there was one woman in Herod's life that he actually genuinely loved and felt affection for it was Miriam Hashmonait. Everybody says that. And she was, in fact, the only person that could tell her, speak her mind to Herod. You've got to remember, when we talk about Herod, even at this stage, and Herod's going to go on for the next 40 years, but even at this stage, Herod is a kind of totally paranoid psychotic who will kill anyone if he thinks they're a threat. But Miriam Hashmonait was known to be able to speak her mind uniquely because she knew how much Herod loved her. And so he takes Miriam and her mum and a few other women of the uh, royal household and he puts them in Masada and he 
has them guarded by uh, his sister, his sister's husband. His sister is a woman also called Salome. After Shlomtzion, there were a lot of women in the, especially in the Herodian dynasty, that were called Salome. Some of them became famous in other contexts. But uh, he takes the mother and he takes uh, Miriam and he puts them in charge of this guy Joseph, his brother-in-law. And he tells Joseph. If Mark Antony kills me, you are to kill them. You are to kill Miriam. I don't want another man going anywhere near her. If I'm dead, she's dead. He goes off to, he goes off to Mark Antony and Joseph tells her. He reveals this to Miriam because he is a man. And he thinks that this would be a good way of explaining to Miriam just how much Herod loves her. Of course, Herod, who was confirmed in his position as king by Mark Antony, comes back and Miriam is a ropeable. And Herod, of course, has Joseph killed. And he would have had Miriam killed except for the fact that he just couldn't do that because he loved her too much. But uh, it was kind of probably the beginning of the downfall of their relationship ultimately because some years later what happened to Mark Antony in around huh? he wasn't killed first of all he was killed but he did it by himself <laughs> right but why why did he kill himself because what he was defeated he was defeated by in the famous Battle of Actium, in minus 31, he was defeated by Octavian, who went on to become Augustus. That's the beginning of the, you know, citizen number one, the empire, now it all starts. So Herod now has to go and get confirmed by Augustus. And Augustus happens to be in Rhodes at the time. And... Once again, Herod takes Miriam and her mum and the women and puts them somewhere safe and says to a new guy uh, called Samos uh, that, uh, look, here's the deal. If Augustus has me killed, right? Uh, I remember Augustus said of Herod, it'd be better to be Herod's uh, dog than one of his family, right? Because he knew, like, uh, it was no, they weren't, they, were, they didn't like Herod. They didn't like Herod, but they, they trusted Herod because they knew that he was an effective ruler, that he would get the right amount of taxes, that he would be a loyal client king. And in fact, that was Herod's argument to Augustus, right? Of course I supported Mark Antony because I was loyal to Mark Antony, but Mark Antony's dead and you are the ruler. I will be loyal to you the way I was to him. If I had fought against him, you'd never be able to trust me. And Augustus bought that argument and left Herod in place. But while Herod was away, he gave Miriam to this guy to look after and told her, if Augustus has me killed, that's what you've got to do to Miriam. And this guy, uh, this guy uh, tells her for a different reason. Basically, basically, the, Miriam and her mum do a whole spiel on this guy along the lines of, well, you know, we really need you to tell us what your instructions really are because that will show faith with us because if Herod does not return, then we will be in power and you'll want 
to, you know, you wouldn't mind if we were in your debt. So he tells them. Herod comes back. Miriam this time goes into a total fit. And uh, this time uh, Herod has them both killed. Miriam, Miriam a little bit later. The, uh, Miriam more like uh, a year later in minus 29. Miriam Hashmanid is eventually killed by Herod. Now, the, the, but regrettably for Herod, he spent the rest of his life going, why did I kill the one woman I loved? The rabbis of the Talmud, who are never short of hyperbole, uh, right, and this is once again only for adult audiences, uh, they write that uh, Herod kept her body embalmed. So even the rabbis of the Talmud were aware of how much Herod loved her, kept her body embalmed in honey and other stuff for years and years, and every once in a while would go and have relations with her body, right? Uh, yeah, I know. Um, so everything's possible in the Talmud, but. Huh? Well, let's not go there. So. <laughs> You see, you see, Miriam's brother, Miriam's brother, uh, also called Aristobulus, Miriam's brother had been appointed high priest by Herod under tremendous pressure from Cleopatra and Mark Antony. Cleopatra was quite a good friend of the Hasmonean family. And when Miriam's mother had made an appeal, she was Miriam's mother, was an extremely uh, influential woman in manoeuvring behind the scenes. Uh, and Salome, and she was actually, actually, sorry, her name was Alexandra, but she uh, was the one that got her son, Miriam's brother, to be appointed a high priest, and he was becoming so popular, he was a very good-looking boy, they were very good-looking children, and he was popular, and he was the high priest, and Herod, of course, had him killed under the pretext of an accident. He came to the Herodian uh, palace one day to have a swim they had a pool there and somehow as a result of horseplay he died in the pool tragically oh my gosh can't believe it but Miriam knew that Herod had organized for him to be killed and from that point onwards certainly as a result of everything else uh, she hated him with a passion Herod eventually went on to kill most of the members of her family uh, uh, including her grandfather and so on and she hated Herod's guts to the extent that the intensity of his love was completely reflected by her hatred for him. So when, at that last time, she finds out that he would still have her killed rather than allowing her to be who she wanted to be, uh, he couldn't take any more and he, uh, she was so upset that he had her killed. <laughs> now, yeah, you can... Sorry? They had children. They actually, I think, had... Uh, uh, five sons and two daughters um, or, or no, no, five daughters two sons and uh, both of the sons were killed by Herod uh, they were sent to Rome to be educated this is this was after Miriam's death and they came back as teenagers like maybe 17 18 years old and uh, they were popular they were nice people liked them people spoke well of them and that was enough to Herod to be a threat to his autonomy as king and he had them executed Herod basically killed everyone he was related to but he always loved Miriam <laughs> now just before because I've got to shift slightly but just before I do I just want to talk about the other Miriam because she's also fascinating uh, Miriam Achashmonait was Herod's second wife I think Miriam uh, she's just known as Miriam or in English if you look, if you research these names, 
you often find them not as Miriam, but as Mariamne, which is a kind of adaptation of their Greek name. So she, Miriam Achashmonait is known as Miriam the Mariamne the first, and Mary, the second Miriam is known as Mariamne the second. So Mariam, but I'm going to check the difference by talking about Miriam and Mariamne. And Mariamne uh, was probably Herod's uh, seventh or eighth wife. Uh, he married ten women in all. Uh, and she was the daughter of a priest. I mean, uh, just before I go, because I've got the... You, you have to understand, I'm hoping that just giving you this, you'll do the research, because I can't talk everything about these personalities. Those of you who are interested in scandal should really, really look into Miriam Achashmonaid because her relationship with her sister and mother-in-law was appalling, Herod's sister and Herod's mother. And they were constantly trying to get friction going between this intense relationship between Herod and Miriam, so much so that they uh, told Herod, which was kind of a partial truth, but for other reasons, they told him that Miriam had sent a portrait of herself to Mark Antony, basically with the message that, look, you know, if for whatever reason you happen to decide to have Herod killed, then uh, I'll be single. <laughs> and they put all these uh, ideas into Herod's head. So they were Iagoing him and kind of boiling his insecurities about what was going on. So just a fascinating plots and intrigues of this family. But no less so than with uh, Mariamne, because what happened is that uh, Every once in a while, one of Herod's sons, especially when we get late in Herod's rule, so we're getting towards the year zero, Herod died in about minus three or four, but as we're getting towards the end of his rule, and he's quite getting older, his sons now are coming into prominence as personalities in the life of political and social life of Judea, and every once in a while there will be a rumour or a groundswell that one of the sons is going to uh, rebel and kill his dad and take the kingdom. And Herod, of course, didn't trust any of his children, didn't trust his wives, why would he trust his children? And <coughs> every once in a while would have uh, one of his sons executed. Uh, and there was an entire plot. However, there was one plot that was probably real. Uh, and that was uh, his son Antipater, who Herod had regarded as his most loyal son, the one son in whom he was probably going to uh, vest the succession anyway. I mean, all this boy had to do was wait a few years till dad cucks it and then he would become king. But for some reason uh, was plotting behind the scenes or was alleged to have been plotting behind the scenes. And when Herod found out, and this is very, very close to the end of Herod's life, must have actually been quite... Uh, upsetting even for Herod, uh, to it was revealed that Antipater had in fact been plotting against him, and of course, so Herod ordered that Antipater be executed. When they and he was when they did a huge commission on this afterwards, they did a big investigation about who knew and who didn't know, because Herod wanted to know who knew about this and why did no one come and tell me? That's the mark of loyalty. Why didn't you tell me about this plot? One of the people that was brought before that investigation, of course, was uh, Miriam. Uh, she, uh, the, several of the wives were still living around, so she was one of several wives. She was brought in, and she had her own children by Herod. She had about three children by Herod. And it transpired that she knew of the plot. And Herod said to her, this is this whole thing, this is this secret, some secrets are very dangerous. And Herod said, if you knew about the plot, 
why did you not tell me? Now that question, answered wrongly, will lead to your execution. Herod killed dozens of people when this investigation went on. That will lead to your death. And she answered brilliantly and truthfully. If I had told you about the plot by Antipater, you would only have assumed that I was telling you about that plot because I wanted one of my own sons to become king. I would have been perceived as completely biased. So I didn't tell you, I did not actively partake in the plot. But even you, Herod, can understand why I could not tell you. Herod couldn't argue with the logic of that and had her and her son banished. Had her son written out of his will and had her Miriam banished, but remarkably not killed because precisely because he couldn't actually answer. Uh, he had to acknowledge uh, the truthfulness of, of what she had been saying. Herod's wives are a fascinating topic. I've just discussed uh, a couple of them, but they all, what, what, where, where are we going with this? Once we, what, what is it showing? Once we move out of the Hasmonean, once we move out of the Hasmonean, strict Hasmonean, into the Herodian client Roman state, what we're finding is a return uh, to the way that uh, Romans would have viewed women, and women were far more treated as. Uh, I mean, there were powerful women, but only really powerful women by virtue of uh, marriage or birth uh, to powerful men. Uh, women were not really climbing uh, socially and culturally in the Roman Empire. This is starting to be reflected. Herod was, to his dying breath, was a vassal and a client of Rome. He even, he even had a great big Roman eagle put on the temple because he believed sincerely that alliance with Rome was the way forward for Jewish history. And... Uh, believed it wholeheartedly, uh, but uh, you know, wasn't necessarily proven to be uh, correct by history uh, when we look at what happened uh, in the next few centuries, and of course, ultimately, what happened to the Roman Empire. And it's always remarkable, and we must always remind ourselves that uh, while the Roman Empire is maybe the uh, the province of historians and archaeologists, the Jewish people today are a living, thriving, breathing, continuing entity. And so uh, it's always a question of looking in hindsight. I don't want to get too soapboxy about that, but it's always a sobering thought to think that at any one particular time, people think that certain alliances are the sure way into the future. But the only real way into the future is for the Jewish people to rely on their own values. Uh, but then what happens, you know, Herod dies and then we get a few decades of archiparchy. I mean, with the, the, the Romans are going, oh, we don't really want any more Herodian kings. Uh, frankly, we'd actually rather rule uh, Iudea directly. And we're going to put in a series of procurators and governors and they're going to be the ones that are going to keep order. And they're going to be the ones that collect the taxes. And they're going to be the ones that are going to rule and will allow the Jews some autonomy in religious matters and a little bit of local jurisdiction. But ultimately, it will be Rome that is in charge. And we're going to make sure that happens because we're going to put garrisons in there in Jerusalem. We're even going to build a new Roman capital in Judea called Caesarea and so on. So we, all of that's happening and all of that rule is becoming more and more oppressive. These are the decades of the first century, what we call first century Palestine. These now known in Jewish history as first century Palestine. These are the decades 
that are going to lead up to the tremendous series of revolts that are going to happen, starting with the very first revolt, the great revolt that, that uh, led to the destruction of the Second Temple. But in those decades, which are amongst the more fascinating windows of world history, and especially in a very, very intense period, that, of course, those decades see the birth of Christianity. Uh, they see the rise of a number of uh, nationalistic and socialist and religious factions, uh, that many of which are going to go on and become extremely influential in subsequent history, and all, all emerging from this pressure valve uh, in this one small area of the world, which is Judea, and all happening in a very short space of time. But that's the story as far as rule is concerned. A series of governors, each one a bigger psycho bastard than the one before, and all they're doing is oppressing and squeezing and manipulating, extorting the public, and maybe with a little bit of uh, military violence thrown in. Some, the best that could be said of some of them was that they were kind of slightly moderate, but the worst ones were just appalling and huge, hugely greedy anti-Semites were simply placed by Rome uh, on the basis that if the population feared them, that was, they were going to be the most effective rulers. And then something unique happened. Just look at the time. Okay, I have to move quickly because I need to discuss this period. A, the, what, what happens is, and you know when you do history, what happens is the shorter the amount of time you want to concentrate on, the more difficult it is to get through because you're plunging into a different level of detail. But very quickly, uh, we've got Augustus and then we've got uh, Tiberius and then we've got uh, Gaius Caligula. And then, uh, but Gaius Caligula is very interesting because uh, Gaius, apart, I'm not going to talk about Gaius Caligula now, that would be fascinating and obviously complete total loon on crack. But the, uh, what's very interesting is that he did actually, some of you are familiar with this because we've spoken about it in other sessions, but he had a, a schoolboy chum that he went to school with and who happened to be a grandson of Herod. All the good Herodian boys were sent to Rome to get their education, not so much the girls, although some of the girls ended up in Rome. Uh, they did their finishing school somewhere else, probably Egypt, but the boys were sent to Rome to get a good Roman education and probably also so the Romans could look at them and see what, uh, what they liked. And uh, a grandson of Herod called Agrippa, had been sent to Rome. And when he was at school at Rome, one of the posh schools, he was at school with a boy who went on to become Caesar. And that was Gaius, who was Caligula. So for all his madness, when Caligula became emperor, he turned around to his old school chum Agrippa and said, Oh, you're from Judea. <laughs> you're a grandson of Herod. How would you like to go back and become a king? And Agrippa says, Oh, that sounds cool. That sounds very cool. Gripper at the time was kind of like running around Rome, being a, a bit of a lad and spending lots of money and getting lots of debts and things. And, you know, just one of those kind of like lives that you lead when you're the grandson of a king and you're at school in Rome. So, uh, well, you've been in school, you're hanging out. So he goes back, Gripper goes back to become king. So for a window of time, they suspend the governorship of Rome and they restore the Herodian kingdom under Agrippa I. When Caligula dies, Agrippa happens to be in Rome and plays a crucial part in the election of the next emperor. Crucial meaning serious behind the scenes maneuvering. And so the emperor, the new emperor, Claudius, 
is quite in debt to Agrippa and bestows upon him an even greater area of Judea and even greater autonomy over it. To the point where Agrippa is now a serious little mini, mini power in the Middle East. And the Romans are relying on this. And Agrippa's a good king. Everybody likes Agrippa. Yep, the priests like him, the rabbis like him. Publicly, publicly, whatever he did in private, I don't know, but publicly he kept the Torah. So he kept rabbinic law publicly uh, and was just kind of nice, good, just wanted order. And the Jews were willing to put up with whatever nonsense was going on because they had their own Jewish king. However, uh, tragically, in around 44, after only a very few short years of this, Agrippa dies and uh, the Romans decide that they are going to reinstitute the governorship again, although they are going to allow the Agrippan family to have some kind of royal status and a little bit of autonomy, but in barely beyond name only. Name and influence is all they had now. And therefore, Agrippa, <laughs> Agrippa's... Um, Children were really effectively in that position. They were living in the Herodian palace. They were officially accorded the honors of king and princesses and so on, so on. But they really didn't have that much power. And yet what we're going to see within one family is a very, very fascinating set of circumstances surrounding women. And the one story uh, that you really need to understand if you're going to, well, the background I've just explained is really to understand the story of a woman that, whose life is just remarkable. And some of you will know this woman, and some of you might not be so familiar, but this is a woman that everybody should know about her because her story is so amazing. It's so amazing that it's hard to believe, and yet it is completely factual. She was a daughter of Agrippa, therefore a sister of Agrippa II. And being a princess, she was married off quite young to a dude. Now, it's what's important to understand, once again, very quickly, the map. Yeah? Here's the land of Israel. Now, following the rise of Rome here into the Middle East, the world for the next couple of centuries takes on a particular type of world order. We have a world order today that we're kind of used to, and that will one day all change. Just as then, there was a kind of a world order. And the world order was that there were two massive superpowers. The Romans and the Parthians. Persia, basically. And that, but... They had their centers of power, but dotted around their empire were many, many client kingdoms. That means a local population on a local land, they had their own national identity, and they had a king or queen. They had monarchs, but those monarchs were client kingdoms. In other words, they had complete and absolute autonomy over their own nation, in whichever way the nation was governed by its monarch. But the nation as a whole and the monarch were subservient to the emperor. When the emperor needed soldiers, the emperor got soldiers. When the emperor needed funds, the emperor got funds. You follow? That's called a client kingdom. And of course, 
the emperor has to pay for the allegiance of client kingdom by protecting the client kingdoms when it was necessary. So we're going to look at some of these kingdoms because I'm explaining the background behind the way client kingdoms work right throughout this area. So, so this girl, this, this, this young woman, she's not a girl anymore, she's a young woman, she is uh, married off to uh, one of the client kingdoms, in fact, but that's not successful. She comes home, she has a series of failed marriages. One of her failed marriages is to a guy from, a Jewish guy from Alexandria, because of course they're Agrodian, they're Hasmonean, they're Agrippan, so they can't just marry anybody. And she's married off to a guy called Marcus uh, Tiberius Alexander, who is uh, the son of a very, very famous, well-off Alexandrian family. That marriage doesn't work out. By the way, that Marcus that she married, I mean, this is a separate thing. I don't want people to get confused. But that Marcus that she married was the brother of Julius Tiberius Alexander. You know who Julius Tiberius Alexander is? I better give you her name. Right? Yeah, might be useful. Right? Put up your hand if you know who I'm talking about. Put up your hand if you know who I'm talking about when I write her name on the board. She's also got a Roman name she's known by as Julia Crispina. Anyway, her... F oh. Uh, then, then, I'm about to, then I'm about to change your life, so just listen. No, because I can't believe, like, it's, it's not your fault, but it's amazing that people do not know about these people. Berenice was first of all married. She was a Jewish princess. She was married to Marcus Tiberius Julius uh, Alexander, a uh, Roman, a, a Jewish businessman from Alexandria, whose family was wealthy enough to marry into the royals. Uh, and the brother, as I said, of Tiberius Julius Alexander. Tiberius Julius Alexander was a Jewish boy that... Uh, that um, went into the Roman army and rose and <laughs> rose and rose to eventually become governor of Egypt and then eventually become, listen to this, second in command at the destruction of Jerusalem by Titus, a Jewish boy. So he's a fascinating figure. Their uncle, their uncle, direct uncle, their father's brother, their uncle was Philo, the philosopher of Egypt, the great Jewish philosopher of Egypt. This is a big Yichas family, but the marriage doesn't work out. So she comes back, then she's married off to some other dude, some kind of kingdom dude who is kind of half Jewish, whatever, and that doesn't work out. So eventually she comes back. By the time we get to the crux years, just before the revolution from around about 66 onwards with Cestius Gallus's uh, legion coming into the land of Israel and then being wiped out by the zealots and it's the start of the whole rebellion. She's back home having had two or three failed marriages, been unlucky in love, living with her brother Agrippa II. Everybody follow? Mm -hmm. I am not one of those who places any historical accuracy or weight whatsoever to the awful stories that have come out of that that there may have been some sort of relationship between those two uh, there were of course in many of these client kingdoms around the Persian and Roman empires it was quite a common thing for brothers and sisters to get married and in some cases full-blooded brothers and siblings were getting married in order to retain power within the royal family but that was uh, very, very unlikely to be the case with those two. But she'd been living with her brother for quite some time, basically because why not? He lived in the Herodian palace. Uh, she couldn't find any men that impressed her. 
Uh, and she has a sister who I'm going to talk about in a moment, Drusilla. And Berenice is kind of, Berenice is, Berenice is beautiful. No, 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 wait, wait, wait. Berenice is kind of good looking. She's attractive. But her sister Drusilla is stunning. This is what we're told, right? All princesses are beautiful, but some are more beautiful than others. And Drusilla had the looks, but Berenice had the emotional intensity. That's what we understand from all of the accounts of this. Anyway, eventually, as you know, by the time we get to around 68, and of course, this is, you know, after Nero dies, and then we get the year of four emperors. And of course, the guy that's going to eventually become the big emperor who's going to start the Flavian dynasty, Vespasian. Vespasian is uh, invading Judea during that famous year of 68. Uh, 69. Uh, he hasn't quite got to Jerusalem yet, but he's invading Judea and uh, the Agrippans, Agrippa I and his sister Berenice and their entourage decide they've tried to quell the revolt by trying to convince people just to calm down and not do it. You can't win against Rome. It's all going to end in disaster. And they were right. Um, and having failed in those attempts and the populace had actually kind of saw in the Agrippans a focal point for their resentment of Roman rule. So uh, Agrippa and his sister made it to the Roman lines and they went and they joined Vespasian's force. I mean, they didn't join his fighting force, but they went to his camp to seek protection. I mean, more than a camp. Vespasian had arrived in Judea with 60,000 troops, six legions and God knows what else. Two of those legions were led by his son and eventual successor, Titus. Everybody follow? When Berenice saw Titus, and by this stage, Berenice is about 39, and Titus is a big strapping Roman lad of 25, the son of a general and a general himself. When she saw Titus, she instantly went gaga. And amazingly, when Titus saw Berenice, he immediately went, Manang. And the two of them, throughout the whole of the Judean campaign, carried on an intense romantic relationship. Vespasian's forces reached Jerusalem. Berenice is with them. Vespasian gets recalled to Rome because he's going to become emperor. I want to recall, he goes back to Rome to become emperor. The armies of the East and the West proclaim him emperor. It's it. He goes and he leaves Titus the job of conquering Jerusalem and finishing this business with Judea. And that is why on the 8th of Av in the year 70, in that famous, famous council meeting on the eve of the destruction of Jerusalem, Who's there? Well, by the way, where was that meeting? That meeting was in Titus's headquarters. Where was Titus's headquarters at the destruction of Jerusalem? There's only one. There's one place in Jerusalem that will give you the best view if you're trying to conquer it. The no, huh? The mount. Which mountain? Mount Scopus. That's why it's called Mount Scopus. Has anyone ever been to Mount Scopus University? Have you been to the Hecht Synagogue? Have you seen those windows? That's Titus's view. That's what he saw. And with him in that council meeting is Tiberius Julius Alexander as his second in command, a Jewish boy from Egypt. And, and that's where they decide 
not to destroy the temple. This is on the eve. They know they've been fighting for weeks through the city. They know they're going to take the temple the next day. That's why they decide not to destroy it. It's a famous episode. We're not going into that now. If the temple does get destroyed and it gets destroyed the next day, but that's a whole other thing. And Berenice is with them and watches and witnesses the destruction of Jerusalem, which must have been very, very traumatic for her. But after the conquest, Titus goes back to Rome. And that's where he's going to have his big victory. This is a massive thing, the conquest of Judea. Titus was huge. They had a parade for him. They made the, the Arch of Titus. They printed coins, Iudea Capta. Judah has been captured, Judah has been conquered, and he brings Berenice with him. And he announces to his family and to the whole of the royal court, and we know about this in detail because one other person who went back with the Flavians was Josephus, and she, he was going to marry her, and he, she was living in a villa in Rome, and Titus knew that whenever dad, may he live to 120, passes away, I'm going to become emperor. And that's indeed what happened. And then certain elements within the Roman Senate intervened. We are not going to have a Jewish princess as the empress of Rome. And so she stayed in Rome and eventually they made that clear to her and it was very hard. But eventually Titus had to say to her, this relationship is over because I need to marry someone that they're going to let me marry. My life's not my own anymore. I'm now emperor. I mean, plays have been written about it. No one's made the big film I think should be made about this. It's a phenomenal story. But a Jewish princess, Julia Crispina Berenice, almost became the Empress of Rome. I just want to touch for a second, uh, just see what time is, one more minute. So unfortunately one more minute, but I just want to touch for a second on what happened to her sister, because her sister Drusilla, the stunning one, she, she got married also a couple of, she got married off to, she got promised to a guy who was the Prince of uh, Comagene, I think, which is up here, it was another client state, but Agrippa the <coughs> second, her brother, only allowed her to be betrothed to this guy on condition that he convert to Judaism. He looked into it and he went, ah, no, thank you. <laughs> so she had to come back home. Then she got married to a guy from another client state who was actually a pagan client state. He was like a part of this king priest family that were ruling just up here near Homs in Syria. They had their own whole client state. And, uh, she was married to him on condition that he become circumcised. I think that Agrippa had lowered the standard a bit, you know, like <laughs> conversion to Judaism, all right, at least get circumcised, right? We don't want any Jewish princesses going near any foreskins. Let's at least do that. And then, uh, and so he does and they get married. And then amazingly, she leaves that marriage incredibly brave and radical, perhaps foolhardly, but nevertheless brave and radical thing to do. She leaves that marriage because she falls in love or is rather connived into a relationship with an eventual marriage to a Roman called Antonius Felix, who was the governor of Judea and not one of the nice governors, an awful governor, an awful greedy, cruel governor. And she got married to him and 
she's even mentioned, Drusilla is mentioned, one of the very few Jewish women, the historical Jewish women mentioned in the New Testament, in the book of Acts, because she sat with her husband, Antonius Felix, uh, when Saul of Tarsus, who became Paul, uh, was eventually brought before uh, Felix for uh, some kind of assessment of his status. And the book of Acts uh, tells us that uh, Drusilla was there with him. And the other really interesting thing about fact about Drusilla, just to kind of wrap this up, uh, to show just how much Jewish history is intertwined, she, she eventually went back to Rome with Felix. And uh, in 79 CE, she died together with her children in the destruction of Mount Vesuvius. So the whole destruction of Pompeii and Herculaneum, she was there and died in Vesuvius together with uh, one, at least one of her children. So uh, amazing that the way that that kind of interconnects with different things that are going on in the background. But thank you for going on this roller coaster ride. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed the talk. For episode notes and transcripts, or to learn more about David's next classes and projects, visit davidsolomon.online. You can also find David on Instagram or Facebook. Thank you. We hope to see you again soon. Thank you.